This week's topic with Coach Jackson is sustaining success and how can coaches and leaders propel their teams on to further success after already achieving at high levels. This follows up on many of our previous conversations which address the development of a system, building a system, and getting to success. So as we all know, Coach Jackson is one of the best ever at sustaining success and keeping his team at the top. So we discussed some very specific practices that Coach used to use as the leader of some championship teams and heard some broader thoughts as well that Coach Jackson has brought to the game over the years. In this session, we were also joined by some other leaders from the field of baseball. Phil Nevin, who was a major league player for many years and also a manager, and also Mark Sweeney, who also was a top major league baseball player. We were joined by uh, a number of folks in the room, so this was a little bit of a different session, but another great conversation with Coach Phil Jackson as we talk about coaching and leadership. Well, good morning, Coach. It's a big morning here. We're, we're a little different today in that we are in one of our classroom buildings. We're in Camp Randall Stadium, and we've got a, a great group with us. On the other side of these walls right now, there's a, there's a state high school football championship game being played. So we have we have four games going today. Rice Lake, Rice Lake and one other school are playing right now for the state title. We're on the other side of the wall. And then all morning, there was a fire in the engineering building. So the engineering building was burning down and the state mm -hmm. f football game was going on and we're in here learning. So it's a busy day. <laughs> And Coach Jackson, we also have some special guests with us today. We have uh, Phil Nevin and Mark Sweeney are here with us who have lots of years of Major League Baseball experience Hi, in a variety of ways. Morning. Morning. Good afternoon for you. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Is, uh, yeah. We, I just flew from California yesterday, so we're we're still on the same time zone. Right. Yeah. You're, you're morning-wise. Well, you got a lot going on there. Um Rice Lake, is that a double-A division or is it a single-A or what is the classifications? The way it works is we start with the smallest schools. So all day yesterday, there were games from the smallest, Division 7, 6, and 5. And then today, we're working up Division 4 all the way up. Division 3, 2, and 1. So right now playing is Rice Lake versus Grafton. Then we have Wanakee versus Badger. And then Marquette versus Franklin. So we get... Yeah, uh, we the dreams, the dreams are coming true today or being shattered. One of my teammates uh, was a doctor in Rice Lake for 45 years. So I have a little connection to Rice Lake. Okay. That's why I asked. Yeah. Okay. Well, we may have to pull for Rice Lake today. <laughs> it's been a great, great uh, few days here and a great semester so far. And today, everyone, both who's on Zoom, but also who's here, um, our topic with Coach Jackson is sustaining success. And um, so this semester, we've we've addressed a lot of different issues, everything from kind of the, the deeper things relating to the spirit of the game, the inner game of sport and, and the mental side of the game to very organizational things, like how do you develop a system on your team? How do you develop values and principles on your team? And, and Coach Jackson has guided us through a lot of that. Today, our topic is sustaining success. And so, so whereas our previous weeks were much focused on building 
from the ground up building a system. Today, we're going to talk about now you've built it and how do you kind of sustain things. And our, our rhythm that we've had this semester is that we first touch on some research in the field in the area, and then we have engaged coach with a, a back and forth with some questions. Does that sound like a good plan today, coach? We're on it. Let's go. All right, let's go. All right. So the research part, let's start with that. We have a project here, a study that some of us who are in the room are a part of, which is called the Wisconsin Coaching Project. And we've studied, we've interviewed about 70 or 80 coaches around our state um, at all levels, at, at high school levels, college levels, and other levels. And we're learning about a, a number of things, but we want to share some of what we learned about sustaining success today from that study, but also some others. So first of all, we've learned that it's difficult to sustain <laughs> the most obvious finding, but four things in particular we found to be challenges related to that. One is when you win, when you win well, members of the team get opportunity in other places. So there's personnel turnover that teams who tend to win, whether it's a state title game today in Camp Randall Stadium, or it's the Los Angeles Lakers winning the NBA World Championship. When teams win, assistant coaches, players, others, they get opportunity, which is a good thing for them, but it, it's, it creates challenges with turnover. We found that in our research to be a very common thing. A second, which is one that coach you have written about is ego. And that when you're building something, you're in building mode that um, there's a certain um, team focus that maybe gets changed a bit when, when the winning has occurred and that how do you deal with ego and how do you still have something bigger than me as opposed to just what's in it for me? A third thing that we found um, in our study, it relates to physical and mental well-being of the team, especially at the um, professional levels. Coach, I would be interested in your take on this, but just the sheer length of the season that goes on and the wear and tear of a season. When you win, you could be playing a third longer season than the others, than the other teams are playing. So the, the physical and mental aspects of winning are, are significant. Also with that is that when a team wins, other things come into the fold, like more they're being pulled in multiple directions from multiple people who want something from them even opportunities to play on international teams. I know coach, you've deal with, dealt with that with your players playing internationally for prolonged stretches. Then the fourth research finding that we found here that we talked about is this balance between maintaining values and principles that your team has, has believes in the bedrocks of your system while building a new identity for a new group of people. So even though you 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 may have the same values, you're going to have different cast of characters. And how do you develop a new identity, a new a new team identity within existing values? So, Coach, a lot there to ask you about. But the first question I'd like to maybe shoot your way is that this even gets at before you win the title, and when you have a team that's doing really well, perhaps during a season. You mentioned last session, you had a, a Lakers team that won 17 games in a row at one stretch. How do you keep a team sharp and challenged when things are going well, making sure that everyone stays attuned while things are going well in the midst of a season? 
Well, <clears throat> there are, I think, alternate things. I think you have to be able to read the, the team as a coach so that you understand the makeup of the team, whether you drive them or you back off and allow them to take the break or the rest or the space that they need between a heavy schedule. Um, <clears throat> I, I think probably getting out of their way is important because I think uh, winning is kind of like gets to be habitual or gets to feed on itself. There's something about uh, um, we could take from the, the World Series this year or the playoffs at baseball. Uh, you know, what happened with the Dallas team where they won, uh, was it 11 games on the road? All 11 were on the road, yeah. All 11 games on the road where you come together as a team and you're <clears throat> isolated maybe from all the other stuff that goes on, parking your car and your family, getting them to the game or whatever else goes along with all that stuff. And you can just focus on the one aspect of what you have to do. That's go out there and play ball. And I think that's something that was kind of remarkable. I don't know, I think I've seen it happen quite like that in, in a sport before, especially baseball, which is uh, – you know, give and take a lot in, in games because of different pitchers or because of uh, whatever goes on in situational ba baseball. But <clears throat> that was remarkable. And uh, when you get a team that's really competent and um, playing for each other together, you see that happen. That It doesn't matter whether on the road or at home or whatever. They're still playing exceptionally well. And, uh, you know, the preamble before even the playoffs began, I think, sparked the Dallas team into what happened in the playoffs because they had to, you know, survive, go to Seattle, play some games up there. And so that, that was an example that's remarkable uh, that was right before us this year. I've had situations where a, a team is going really well and – uh, just a minor thing, scheduling, uh, storm comes up, you're delayed, uh, went back and had to recapture rooms uh, in a hotel and everybody had to share rooms together, which is, you know, something that uh, professional players don't often do just to accommodate a team uh, because of the snowstorm that inundated uh, the airport and our plane. And the, um, the little hiccup that happens was like, okay, I'm worried. I'm kind of like, is this going to derail kind of the momentum we've got? I think it was an impetus. I think sometimes those things, you know, bring humanity or the sharing camaraderie or things like that to a group of people that are maybe isolated, diverse, but yet professionally are playing in a, in a solidity, a solid group, uh, have some kind of teamwork going. But something like that, you know, instead of being a, a derailing aspect, was it positive aspect? So there could be just uh, life circumstances that can change things. I think those things are important to recognize as a coach that, uh, you know, there, there are issues that, sh that come up that can be, uh, blamed or used or even the uh, examples that uh, are positive, but it's how you look at it. 
how, how you want to handle it, whether you want to be upset about it, whether you want to say, oh, let's make do the best we can. Here we go. This should be interesting. Or life's an adventure. Let's go get it. You know, that type of thing. So I think it's the positive attitude that's kind of meted down through the organization from the top to the, you know, to the trainers, to the guys that are shoveling out the, the equipment at the end of a day or whatever. All those things are, I think, are, are fit into this aspect of what's a team? How do you make the best of it? Coach, after a season, particularly a successful season, how do you spend the weeks immediately after the season? And do you have a specific system for reflection upon the prior season? Well, the normal uh, process of ending a year is going through a, you know, kind of a debriefing of all the players. You know, this is uh, your year. This is what should be expected, you know. Um, you're a free agent. We can't talk to you about next or you're, you're under contract. And so we can talk to you about training. Uh, these are the things you have to work on physically, you know, all the things that go into making a player, a better athlete. But the big thing that about successful is that all these things are abbreviated. Oh, uh, we were great. That happened. We're, you know, fortunate. We'll just replicate what we did before. However, in my experience, off-season surgeries often happen. And you have to, you know, in one situation, we had two starters that couldn't come back and start the next season due to the surgery they had midsummer. Our season ended in late June. Surgeries happened in late July. They still weren't ready to go by October, November. So there are things that can then change the whole aspect of it when you have a professional team, older players, wear and tear, injuries, et cetera, that go on. Coach, I, I wondered if the outcome of the season ever can cloud your assessment of how things went. And specifically, sometimes you win, but actually you there may be things that happened that should not have happened that need to be fixed. But because you won you might be more prone to overlook those things and, and vice versa. You may have not had the outcome you wanted, but because you didn't win it all, you may be overly critical and actually you may be on a good trajectory. So how do you kind of um, grapple with that? Well, I think it's vision. I think you have to see the changing vision that goes on and how you imagine your team's going to respond uh, we had a situation in 93-94. Uh, Michael Jordan had gone to baseball and left baseball at the end of March and came back to play the last maybe 14, 15 games of the season. And then we went into the playoffs. It was a quite a big thing. We lost to Orlando. <clears throat> Orlando uh, was the dominant factor. Shaq was maybe in his third or fourth year. They had two or three uh, young players, Penny Hardaway, uh, up-and-coming stars that were playing very well, and we had to re-sculpture our team. And a draft or a expansion draft, I should say, was going to go on in the season uh, during the offseason. I think Toronto was coming in or Vancouver. 
situation like that. And we had to expose one of our players that had been a starter for us on a championship team and BJ Armstrong, simply because we had to change what we were going to do as a basketball team. Instead of having small guards, we were going big guards because we knew we were going to have to double team Shaq. And so we went with all six, 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 seven guards and forwards and Pippen Jordan and Ron Harper so that we could get down and trap the big fella, you know, as long as we could block his path, we could get down there and trap him. And it turned out to be, you know, one of the most successful seasons ever that we had. Now, the other aspect, of course, was that we needed a power forward. And, you know, we made the trade for Dennis Rodman, uh, who came on the team that year. And we had a very successful year that we continued with that aspect of big guards. And then I got the reputation of not liking little guards, which, you know, I like them very much. I think they're really nice guys. But <laughs> we got into a, a larger group of guys playing the game, which is kind of what's happened in the game uh, for a number of years until then it went to uh, quite small guards and uh, Chris Paul and the the like of guards that are six foot or under even that are agile. The agility and speed became a factor, but we, we had a momentum of something that was going on that was specifically important for us to, to do. So we had to re-sculpture our team, look at it visually, what we're going to do. And it was saying goodbye to one of our favorite players, you know, someone that was uh, a big part of our championship team. In your book, 11 Rings, Coach, you use the phrase dance of the wounded egos that happens <laughs> after a title. What do you mean by that? Well, you know, the uh, Wheaties box used to come out with a championship photo of the team on the Wheaties box and everybody wanted to be on the box and, you know, whatever. And that was part of the the image. And um, specifically, guys that uh, played a role on the team felt, you know, like their value and wanted to improve it or wanted to move it in a certain direction. And, you know, even to this day, I... I was reading an autobiography by a guy named Scott Williams that played on our teams back in the first three-peat championship team. And he was coming in as a, uh, a second-round draft pick because he had separated his shoulder and he had issues that had to do with uh, you know uh, physical nature. And so in our exit meeting, you know, where he won a championship and he'd had a success and he'd done really well, we couldn't speculate about his future because he was still going to go through operations that were critical to the nature of his playing ability. He'd had dislocations even in practice, you know, which were uh, the joint was not stable. So, you know, we, we had to kind of hedge our, you know, Scott, we hope this works well, but we can't project our future with you as, as we go through this kind of thing, because this is what we have to do to provide the strength of our team and you know 25 30 years later it still kind of was a wound for him he still kind of felt it uh you know it was like oh that's too bad i felt like i had really deserved something and it's interesting because um when 
Jordan went to the retirement, went to baseball. We had a very successful season with that team. Uh, they had won three championships in a row and, you know, 10 of the 12 players were still on the team minus Jordan. And, uh, at the end of that season, we lost in a seven game series to the New York Knicks and Scott was almost inconsolable, uh, in the locker room afterwards. And I was, uh, talking to him about it and he said you know I thought it was about me I thought because I was here we won championships I was always a part of this winning thing I said well it's all of us it's not just you and you're the good luck charm it's about how we all fit together and how it goes so it was, it was interesting about that aspect of the visualization of a player a young player at that time he was just 24 but how he felt about his own part or, you know, I think Scott never started. He came off the bench. He's an important player, but that was how he saw himself. And I, I think that's something that as a coach, you always have to imagine where does this person think he fits into our team effort? How, how important is he to, how, how can I make him feel important? And yet, how can I make him feel that we will go on regardless? So, you know, if you have to take a break, if you get injured or whatever, we're still going to go on. And that's, you know, kind of understanding the mentality of athletes. Coach, you had this really unique experience of having three different three-peats. And I, and I wonder, each time you won on the front end of those three-peats, whether each of the ensuing seasons was an attempt to replicate the previous season or were you beginning again fresh each year in your perspective in terms in terms of commu- uh, team identity and what you were about as a team yeah we put together a, a you know booklet for the players and i i had in my contract the fact that i had from draft day, uh, which has happened at the last Tuesday or Wednesday of June until uh, the opening of training camp that I was off. There was a summer league. There were, you know, free agents. There were a variety of things. But I always felt that it, I needed to get away from the game. I needed to take a break. Um, and, you know, for that regard, I you know, I, I never wanted to be part of the Olympic group of coaches or USA basketball because I think we need or I needed personally to get away and take a break from the intensity and the pressure and the winning and the losing and all the things that go into just, you know, that and focus on my family. I have five children and, you know, they're, you know, lack, lack of parental uh, guidance over the course of a season which almost replicates a school year uh, was important that when they're off in the summer that, you know, I was there and be part of it. And also it was a time for me to envision what the team was going to look like the next year. And we always held something back as a coaching unit, as a, uh, what are we going to do differently this year? What are we going to add or subtract from what we've done in the past? So it's not, get stale or it's not so easy to scout us. So those are the times that I, I kind of looked at that, spoke to some of my assistants 
in the summer about what are we going to look like next year? Uh, obviously, we added players except for one season, a 95 team that won 72. We, we gave up our first round draft pick, which was the, the last pick in the draft, obviously. But the, the league forces you to take that draft pick, and we traded it away. We actually took it, but traded it away because we wanted those 12 players together again. Um, and, and so that, that's always something that you, you add into a winning group, someone that's coming in who doesn't have a whole lot of credibility. So you have to build that up and let the veterans kind of teach him the way or the, the aspects of becoming part of that group and part of the team and earning his credibility. I also wonder in a similar way about your staff coach in that when you win championships, often it's members of the championship staff that get opportunity. What was your perspective on um, maintaining a staff versus wanting to create opportunity for the members of your staff? Well, how did you find a balance between those two things? Well, we always encourage you know, your assistants to, to gravitate to a better job if it's possible, because that's part of their professional excellence or their vision. And, and you lost, you know, three or four of my assistant coaches over the years to, to leave and move on to head coaching jobs. Uh, I didn't have other uh, coaches that went to other teams as assistant coaches. They usually stayed with our team. And fortunately for me, I had uh, assistant coaches that were uh, head coaches for much of their career as coaches and were in their mid to late sixties and were enjoying what they were doing as, as uh, assistant coaches. So I did, I didn't have a continual turnover, but there was that, uh, you know, three, three of the guys that were assistant coaches went on to head coaching jobs. And there's a gap. There's, there's a personality they add to the mix. And it's important to um, make sure that the, we divided our players into uh, short teams. In other words, one coach would have four players. Another coach would have a, a segment of four players that they knew intimately. Maybe they'd help draft them. Maybe they were, you know, alumni of the same college, whatever. There was a connection. And, you know, when a player leaves that four, four or five guys that he had been connected with, you have to replace that coach and that personal, you know, uh, mentor. Uh, I kind of think of that coaching as mentors with, uh, with someone that can, you know, gather that group together and, and continue on. Uh, helping them be get better and improvement is always what we look for. Unfortunately, we had leaders in uh, both my uh, coaching segments, uh, Jordan and uh, you know Kobe Bryant. That both of those guys were improving during the year. They had a specific thing they wanted to improve, on. and they would uh, you know specifically say, "I'm going to work on this. We're going to do that." And I think it was an impetus for their teammates to see that there was, you know, an aspect of the game they wanted to improve on when they were, you know, at the top of their game. And everybody thought about that as, oh, they're at the top of their game. What could they possibly work on? But 
that that drove the players, I think, very much. Along the similar lines, again, did coaches ever seek to add to their toolkit in ways that Jordan and Kobe did? In other words, um, we've talked a lot this semester about the specializations of Coach Winter and Coach Bach defensively and offensively and how they mm -hmm. definitely brought that to the table. But when you thought about the complementarity of your staff in terms of the skills mm -hmm. and kind of assets that each member brought, did did people look to build on that as coaches as well? You know, we went to a you know basketball change. Uh, Shaq will tell you about that if you ever listen to him about how he changed the game. That uh, you know the defense has changed and now they could double team the post without the whatever the illegal defensive rules that were back in those particular days where you couldn't automatically go double team a post player. So we we had. Uh, a game that evolved from, you know, system basketball to basically screen roll, spread floor, three-point shooting. And so uh, one of the, the jobs that we, you know, kind of jobbed out to the system, figure out how we could zone this. We need to be able to throw a zone out for, you know, segments of the game, maybe a timeout between, you know, the five-minute timeout, the two-minute timeout, so that we can upset a team from their rhythm. If they get in a rhythm and things are starting to, you know, hurt us with the success of three-point shots, we need to take them off their spaces by playing a zone. So, yeah, there, there are specific things that happen. And then there's also things like, well, they're um, criticals. You know, give me some ideas about some criticals that you might have. These are um, out-of-bound special plays, last-second plays, and the quarter plays and the game plays, those type of things. Yeah. So we we'd have specific things like that that would be, let's refresh that and look at that. You know, when you mentioned the <clears throat> change, like the allowing zone defense, it makes me think of baseball, just the changes that have happened in the last couple of years. Um, and I don't follow it as nearly as closely as obviously you guys, but I wonder if changes to your game affected the way that you coached phil yeah the the new rules we brought in this year i don't think were as a, uh as much of a challenge for us as, as at least as far as my as managing a game as a few years back when they brought the three pitcher rule in I don't know, if you the three batter rule so i brought it yeah. you really had to face three guys so you're you're almost sometimes you know, I played for Bruce Bochy for eight years in San Diego, so I'll probably reference him a lot during my questions. But, you know, he had retired, and we came back in the game. That was the first question he asked me is, how do you handle this? You know, I didn't manage under the three-batter rule. So you're thinking kind of sometimes you bring in a reliever, maybe a hitter ahead than you normally would. You know, Boch being a guy that was heavy on the left-right matchups when he was in San Francisco – uh, has to play it a little bit different this year than he did uh, with the Giants. He, now he's doing it with the Rangers. And that was one of his challenges when he was talking about through the playoffs was, you know, he really only had the three reliable relievers and Chapman was one that was a kind of a wild card because they were reverse split guys. So Spores, the guy you saw, he was better actually against lefties than he was against righties. And, you know, he could bring in, in a couple batters early, but you also got to think of, okay, if I want Chapman for this lefty and, four hitters I can't bring in spores now because he's got to face that lefty so you bring him in a pit a batter early if that makes sense you know like 
those are the things that in my mind were the challenges rather than a pitch clock where that was just practicing it over and over in spring training, getting guys in the box quicker. And as they, by the time we hit opening day, we, we, we had to, we had it down. It was just a, the minor league players, because they'd been under those rules for the last couple of years, they were actually helping out the veteran guys and you could see them. It created a little more energy in the game, but for us, that wasn't a, a an obstacle as far as managing a game or a team, if you will. Uh, that was more on the players. So the, the rules that were implemented this year were bigger bases. Uh, what else did they bring in? Yeah, the pickoff, the pickoff rules. Okay, that was that was something that kind of took some time for us to learn. Uh, you know, you've already picked over twice. Now you can't do it again. If you do, you got to record an out, or the guy gets an extra base. There's some tricky plays with the first and third situation that we came up a few times. Like if you picked over to second a couple times you picked over to first, you could send that runner from third. As soon as the pitcher stepped off, if he didn't record an out, so now you can hang that guy out between first and second. Now, if you get a guy back to the base, that run scores, if, if that makes sense. Like, so those are things we had to practice during spring training. Those are things we had to talk about, and mostly to the younger players. And I had a couple of coaches on my staff that were from the minor leagues that had been in these under these rules and were able to you know, they helped us more with those adjustments and it was something that we're not used to you know if they, i'm sure you had rules that were implemented as you were just talking about with the zone and the illegal defense stuff that just kind of come up on you and you got one training camp to go over it with your team because you're used to doing it a certain way i mean it's something that we had to go over and over again and practice kind of live situations uh, that we normally wouldn't do during spring training yeah, that that created a, that created a whole different rotation in basketball. So it it was uh, how are you going to rotate because it's kind of uh, against your mindset. So if there are two players on one side of the floor in space and one player on the other side, you don't rotate those two players because that's going to you know open up three point shooting from the corner. So it's all it was all against what logic is against your own logical mindset so yeah there there are things like that that um have implemented the game whereas uh just playing ball you know going back just playing ball i thought was like oh why, why don't we just uh change this up and and make this thing change significantly so we don't have to change how the rules are played let's make the court bigger let's make the court wider so that we don't have a little porch shot from, you know, 20 feet from the corner, which now guys can shoot almost 50% from three-point line. Why don't we just make the court wider? It would never had a specific dimension. That's not part of basketball. Baseball has 90-foot bases, et cetera. Pitcher mound is, you know, 60 feet, six inches. The, you know, there are specific things that, you know, Double Day and the people that originated the game kind of put together. But basketball never had that. They they had uh, he played on small courts, he played on large courts, and at some point, you know that became kind of like a standard. But it's, you know, I always felt like you're making rule changes that could be abbreviated by just playing the game the same way, but enlarging the game as the players got bigger and more athletic. So that they're, they're really. Uh, kind of bastardized the games in a way. Right. So it's it's kind of interesting to see it happen 
right before our eyes, you know. Uh, I was looking at the game and I was like, oh, I, I play baseball. Uh, we had a, you know, 3.30 down the lines and 4.10 at center field when I was like in American Legion baseball. Now these pro players are playing in parks that are smaller than I played in as a, you know, teenager. Uh, you know, it's just, it's kind of interesting to watch how television has generated the game. Towards the end, okay, yeah, yeah, right. towards the end of your career, and I wanted to ask you this question. As I was watching NBA games, our season ended probably about five, six years ago, and I was watching a couple NBA games, and all of a sudden the scores were like 130 to 140, you know, ridiculous numbers as far as point totals. Where I'm used to you guys, most games were under 100, like when you know when you guys were playing. And towards the end of your career, this is kind of when it started to happen. A good friend of mine, he actually said to say hello, Eric Musselman. I think you put, worked against his dad and stuff. But I called him right away. I said, Mus, what, what's going on? And this was partly the defense, but where analytics teams came in and it was basically what you were just talking about. It was shooting threes and dunks. And the defense wasn't as important as we were preaching. And just like with us, it's hit home runs. Now it's in, it turned into more stealing bases. And then sure, obviously yeah. pitcher matchups later in a game. How much did the analytic part play a role? Like, did you have to change your style of coaching towards the end when that kind of was implemented in your game too? I resisted it uh, because, you know, we always had this idea that if you shoot, the team goal was to shoot 75% from the free throw line and 50% from the field. So the analytics came in with this idea that if you shot 33% from three-point line, you were matching 50% from two. So it was, it was as good. But my counter to them was, well, you could do that, but 66% of your shots are misses instead of 50%. So how are you de defending those 70% greater misses that are now susceptible to fast break points, which is what happened to the game. The game became wide open. People ran out. They stopped and shot threes a lot more than they went in for a layup. But those are wide open threes, and it was easier to make them because that's what everybody started practicing. All their practice elements became running the court, stopping in the three-point line, off the dribble or the catch, and shooting three-point shots. The players kind of gravitated towards that and their skills improved. But my contention was I like to play full court pressure defense. So if you have interior scoring, you're right there to step up and play full court pressure defense because you brought the defense compacted inside the lane or around the lane. So that's still my bit better judgment is get the full court defense going which you see in the playoffs and then everybody scores under hundred points now right. or 110. So it's all, it's all about how wide open do you want the game and how much defense do you want to make players play? I was going to use that same analogy. You just said there's more defense played in the playoffs. There's more of like, say a care factor. Uh, it's the same thing in our game as well. Like you don't see guys move runners. You don't see situational hitting early in a game, but then you turn on a playoff game and you do see that. You still have the analytic aspect of people saying, well, the most home runs still win every game. Well, how the fuck did we get to the home run? 
right? <laughs> I have I have six guys in my lineup that give you a good at bat. A pitcher is more susceptible to making a mistake to one of my big guys in the middle, and those are the balls we hit over the wall, right? Not to mention guys are bigger, stronger, and the parts are smaller, like you said. But you know, there's a there's an aspect to that where the rest of my lineup is giving you a quality at bat. The pitcher has to work that much harder through nine to where if Otani and Trout and, you know, the guys in the middle now, they're guys on base, they make a mistake with them on. Now it's a two, three run home run. And those are the ones that are winning the game. So that's why those things are happening. So it's the same. Yeah. Sounds like the same thing that you dealt with too, at the end of your you know run. Yeah. It, it's uh you can make analytics work for you. No matter how you do it, statistics are not proof. That's what I, I can tell the analyst. Don't don't bring me all those statistics. That's that goes against logic a lot of times. Uh, to your point, there's a guy laid down a bunt in the series, and the announcer said that's the first bunt sacrifice bunt he's laid down this season. Evan, so there you go. Yep. Evan Longoria with the Diamondbacks. Yep, yeah, this is yeah. second one of his career. Really? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know as you both are talking about your seasons and coach you, you we talked about the length of the nba season earlier in our semester and baseball is even even more extreme in terms of the length of the season and this idea of peaking at the right time mark i wonder about your perspective on that as a when you were playing especially on peaking at the right time in baseball and how coaches were able to help foster that yeah my perspective is completely different because I was the Jed Bushler of of the NBA I was the utility guy that had to find a way that my job was specialized I was facing seventh eighth nine relievers or closers and that was my job to come in and pinch hit so um, I did I relied on a lot of knowledge during the game um I relied on knowledge from coaches and what they saw, but also over the railing, being involved in the game mentally was was really big for me to help myself into that scenario that I was building up to. So I had to emotionally control that, but also physically and, and mentally getting into the game and staying in the game was very important to me. But I was I was relying on a lot of knowledge. I was talking to pitchers rather than just the hitter aspect what would you do in this scenario so to me I did I relied a lot on knowledge and experience and had to realize that I wasn't getting the reps as a everyday player but I was mentally prepared when I had that opportunity that particular night typically had it happened you know in the game that we played that in the National League you were going to hit pretty much every night being a left-handed hitter I was going to hit so I had to build that up. I had to have that preparation aspect to me where when I stepped in the batter's box, I knew I had that opportunity. I had that, that chance. Um, I'm sure coach can you know, tell you about those situations where there might be a couple minutes in the game, but that aspect is going to be very important in winning that, that mm -hmm. particular game. That's how I felt. Um, I relied on watching everyday guys that you know watching Phil execute certain stuff but what I tried to do is put myself in we had a guy named Wally Joyner who was amazing left-handed guy first baseman he played almost every night I watched his at bats 
and I basically took the same at bats. We weren't the same hitter, but that's how I had to prep myself in case I faced that that starting pitcher particularly or whatever. So there was a lot of knowledge that I had to take in. There was also a lot of communication during games that I had to um, to have with a, a coach like Davey Lopes. Davey Lopes to me was one of those guys that was really a mentor to me, but I asked him a lot of questions and um, I wanted to be that type of player. Which by the way, my man here was, was you second or third still? Second. Second all time major league history pinch hits. So. He did it right. <laughs> I'd say preparation, so. but also survival. I'm a good friend of Judd Bushley too, coach. So I, uh, I know what he uh, had to go through, and and he was on a magic, magic ride. But he also had a lot of value. Yeah, true enough, coach. I remember you talking about um, Coach Holtzman and making sure that you were all attuned to the game when you were not in the game and asking you questions during the game. I, um, you, you, re you've referenced being mentally alert during the game, Mark, did you learn over the course of a season, were you a different player in April than you were in August based on what you were learning across the course of a season? Yeah, I, I think it, it takes its importance level, um, for me in baseball, uh, the at-bats in April to me were important because I it was survival mode of staying in that role, but also knowing that if you're on a winning and successful team, those at-bats are continue to to uh, get more important as the season goes along. Um, it, it's an intensity now that the game has really changed in that aspect. Um, you could feel the games in August and September were much more important. Um, the scenarios that you were in were important because winning that game could change, obviously, the standings part. But, yeah, I mean, I, I you you feel that buildup, but also the importance of being a utility guy and a, and, a, and a bench player every single day was important. And you had to not minimize that. You had to realize that that was, that was your job and that's what you had to still maintain. We're getting down toward our toward our final uh, moments of this course, but I wonder if, Coach, are there other aspects of the, this topic of sustaining success that we should hit on today? There, it's such a broad topic, but do you see any glaring misses we have so far? Well, I, I was thinking of, uh, you know, some of the uh, drives driving forces um, at one time uh, there weren't successive NBA champions uh, it went on uh, I think from the Celtics until the Lakers were able to win two in a row sometime in the 80s um, it was late maybe 87, 88, or 86, 87, the uh, Lakers beat the Celtics and then beat somebody else in the in the finals to win two in a row. And uh, Detroit came in to power. They, they had a really good team. They should have won uh, maybe three or four times. Excuse me for that. So anyway... Uh, Detroit came in and they, they were able to in a row. And of course, they were our arc rival, the bad boys from that group. 
And so winning against uh, Detroit vaulted us into playoffs against the Lakers, both two teams that have won successive championships after 20-some years of nobody winning successive championships. You notice in football, it's very rare. You notice in other sports, very rare for players or champions to succeed. And so uh, two was not enough for this Bulls team because that would have put them in the same level as, you know, the Lakers or the Pistons, arc rivals at that particular time. So three seemed to be, you know, what was really necessary for them to feel success. But the third championship was arduous, difficult. Um, you know, Michael Jordan was kind of torn down by gambling and the idea that he went down to Atlantic City when he was in New York the night off between playoff games. And Dave Anderson, one of the opinion writers in the New York Times, wrote a kind of a scathing article about, you know, Jordan needs to gamble type of thing. And, you know, we end up winning four consecutive games after that against the Lakers, the Knicks. And, uh, you know, was kind of one of the aspects that pushed us into third championship. And then it, then it became like, uh, you know, what we were going to do the next time. But those, those successive championship years are hard on teams because you play 100-plus games in basketball, and most of your injuries come during the playoffs because of the intensity the players play. The minutes are stretched because your starters play three or four or five extra minutes a game than they normally would. Um, one year, Pippen broke a toe in a playoffs in our second successive three-peat group and came back the next year in January after having an operation uh, at the beginning of the season, which was disruptive. That's part of that uh, dancing, uh, you know, the series that was done on the, uh, ESPN. So uh, that, that takes a lot out of a team. Uh, but it's, I think players can look back on it as the sacrifices they made so that they could win the, you know, the extra that you put into it, the operation you might've had to have late to have that ability to have that, you know, the next championship and to carry people on. I had a, a assistant coach that came into our group. We had someone that had to retire as a coach and we had a assistant coach that had been coaching in the, NBA for 30 years that came in and his initial speech was, I know I'm new, you guys are successful, but I've never been on a championship team. And it became like, oh yeah, let's win one for Frank, you know, win one for Frank. And that, that became kind of like a, a goal that this assistant coach could feel that, that joy of winning after coaching for that many years and not having great success. So they're, they're small things, but they make, they make sense. Well, thank you all. Awesome. Really appreciate it. Coach Jackson, thank you so much again. Um, thank you guys so much. These guys came out for fun and we wrote them into class. So that's no fair, but we did it. So thank you all. Have a good weekend, everybody. Thank you, Coach. All right. Thanks, Pete. Thank you. See you.